Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and get it started. Um, uh, I'm delighted to welcome you to a illustrious uh, predecessor of mine and Rick Herman's, uh, Ned LeBeau, who to some people in the room probably doesn't need any real introduction, um, but um, who was director of the Mershon Center from uh, for about seven years or so back in the 90s up through. Whenever, <laughs> whenever it was, and um, back back in my youth, <laughs> and um, and he tells me that um, he's now actually hiding out at what London School of Economics, and I'm retired from you there. Retired well. from there. Okay, okay, and and Dartmouth, uh, retiring from there, <laughs> <laughs> and about to appear on the stage with Woody Allen. Yeah. Uh, at a commencement uh, of uh, what it's the American University of Paris, Paris of Paris. So at any rate, that's uh, uh, that top that one. But anyway, um, actually, seriously, Ned Ned has been a prolific scholar for all of his career. He's written he's sort of written the field of the sort of cultural and psychological approach, social psychological approach to international relations. Um, author of a large number of books, uh, most notably, uh, most recently, Why Nations Fight, uh, Past and Future Motives for War, uh, Forbidden Fruit, Counterfactuals in International Relations, a uh, book that I heard some early glimmers of a long time ago as he was developing it, uh, probably best known for the cultural theory of international relations and the tragic vision of politics, ethics, interests, and orders, which uh, received the George Alexander George Prize for the best book in political psychology. Um, he's uh, a prolific figure, well known to many of us. Um, and I think what I'll do is I'll let Ned take the stage and talk about uh, what, in search of ourselves, the politics and ethics of identity. Thank you. So. Um, does this work? <laughs> You've just answered the question. Uh, what, what do I need to do? It's on. So people can hear me in the back if I speak in this. Maybe better be the same on a podium too. No, no, that <coughs> creates distance between you and your audience. Um, I'd rather just stand here and talk. The subject today is uh, a book that's. Uh, just gone into copy editing uh, that addresses the politics and ethics of identity. It is an outgrowth of a seminar uh, that I started teaching at Dartmouth uh, 10 years ago uh, called Who Am I? Uh, about the politics of identity. The very first day of class, I would ask the students to take out a piece of paper, not to put their name on it, and this was after it, they all told me that they were unique. And I said, write. Write down on this piece of paper why you're unique. And hand it in. And then I'd read out what people had written down. And they're all unique for the same reasons. When I'd point this out, they'd fall back on their distinct life histories. They all had different life experiences, and I admitted that was true. But I said, isn't that mediated by memory? And they said, oh, yes, but my memories are accurate. So the next week, we walked through the work in social psychology on memory, uh, which, of course, indicates how uh, 
not only woefully inaccurate it is, but how memory is a resource that we continually remake to satisfy uh, our contemporary both psychological and social needs. And much of that remake of memory is in response to social cues. So over time, uh, people's memory of events uh, tends to become far more conforming uh, than it was at the outset. So this was a conundrum to me. Why is it that people feel they have unitary, consistent, unique identities which fly in the face of uh, all of the evidence we have from psychology? The second issue at the macro level, which also brought me to the course and to the book, is at the end of the Cold War, people proclaimed or all of a sudden discovered that identity politics were really what it was about at the domestic level, at the international level. And the kinds of politics they're talking about, you could argue, uh, have always been dominant. There's nothing new about identity politics. But the more I looked at the literature, I noted that either people didn't really discuss what it was they meant by identity, or, or were all over the place in their use of the term. They assumed it was somehow unproblematic, and then used it for purposes of analysis. And many of you may know the uh, well-known critique of the concept of identity by uh, uh, Brubaker and <coughs> Cooper, thank you, I was having a senior moment there, by Brubaker and Cooper, uh, which I think is compelling, and add to that the fact that the concept is so deeply implicated in the projects of memory, and so many of those are retrograde from a political and ethical standpoint, that it provides yet another reason to, to step back from it. So I began thinking through, well, what is identity and how should we um, approach it? And I came to the conclusion in a substantive sense that what we're really talking about uh, when we use the term identity is how people think of themselves. And people think of themselves in terms of self-identifications. And people have, and this is not anything new for me, this is all in the way of background to, to my book, people have multiple self-identifications, many of them in conflict. They evolve over time, both in their nature and where they stand in the hierarchy. And which one is, or ones are dominant at any given moment, are a function of context and priming. Huh? And these self-identifications, in turn, are a result of our affiliations and our roles. And one can use affiliations and roles and self-identifications in a much more sophisticated uh, conceptual and methodological way than, than identity. Uh, but that wasn't the problem that interested me. The, it was the deeper problem of why we focus on identities and why they've become so important in the, in the post-war era. Uh, and here I turned initially to the philosophical literature to see what they had to say. And mostly uh, they question or deny even the notion of selfhood on which the concept of identity rests. 
So most philosophers tend to be in the sort of Buddhist camp of the no-self. Uh, others are willing to admit a kind of minimal self, a stream of consciousness, uh, that we're aware of things at any given moment, and may even have minimal selves uh, by which we have certain memories and we engage in reflections uh, for purposes of strategic and other behavior. And the, the dominant formulation of thick selves, which is held by only a minority of philosophers, is the notion of the social self. And this is of a person who has a, an epistemological identity rather than an ontological one uh, that's largely the product of socialization. And psychology also puts great emphasis on social selves. One of the things that has happened here, which is interesting, is that the term, the social self, originated with uh, people like Mead, uh, who placed equal emphasis on agency. And so we're interested in the interaction of agency and society. But gradually, the work in psychology and even in political science has moved away from agency, uh, focusing on the ways in which individuals become trapped by society. And the postmodern construction of self is, is very much in this camp. I wanted to step back uh, from these debates and take a, a broader uh, analytical uh, approach to the notion of identity and the psychological and other functions uh, that it serves. And what I've ended up arguing um, is as follows, that the most useful entry point into the problem of modern identity is Hegel. And Hegel notes what I believe has become the defining psychological uh, dynamic of modernity, which is the tension between reflexive and social selves. So the story, and I'm going to come back to this because it's, it's wrong, but the story is that the modern world differs from the ancient world because there was no interiority, no sense of inner self in the ancient world. And people were simply uh, the sum of the roles that they performed. Well, you read Durkheim and Marcel Mauss, you get this uh, view very strongly. And that all of a sudden, sometime, maybe beginning as far back as the late Middle Ages, interiority began to develop, a sense that people had of something inside themselves. And with that, a reflexive self developed, a sense of me looking out on the world and me looking out on the roles that I performed. And to the extent to which there was a conflict between the two, psychological tension developed. And I argue that while interiority is not new, it existed in the ancient world, just people didn't write about it. It doesn't come out in the discourses for all kinds of cultural reasons, but it was there. It's like saying, if you deny it, it's like saying there was no unconscious before Freud created a discourse about it. Of course there was. Uh, it, it just wasn't so visible, and it wasn't theorized. Well, because of the project of autonomy, uh, interiority dramatically um, increased. And at the same time, due to material conditions, the number of roles people had to perform also increased. And often roles 
uh, that required them to do things, especially in bureaucracies, uh, that they thought at, were at odds with their inner selves. So both among the roles and between the roles and the so-called inner self, or reflexive self, these tensions became acute. And I argue, and this is the core of the book, that four generic strategies of identity emerged to cope with these tensions. Two of them anti-modern, and two of them modern. What distinguishes the anti-modern from the modern approaches is that the anti-modern approaches try to limit as far as possible or even do away with interiority and reflexivity. The modern approaches accept and value interiority and reflexivity, but they have different views about society and how you go about finding and making yourself. Huh? And each of these four strategies is associated with and even helped instantiate a different political project, a different form of political thinking and organization that ha are unique to the modern world. So briefly, let me walk you, you through these, and then I'll talk a little about how I try to make the points uh, given the text that I use, and then I'd like to share with you an overview of some of the conclusions. I started at about 10 past. I just want to stay within my time limit here. It, it's a big book, and talking about big books and short <coughs> lectures is always, always difficult. So the two anti-modern strategies, uh, there's a secular and a religious version of each. Uh, the religious version uh, is associated, or I associate it with, the writings of John Tyndale and the emergence of the Puritans, okay, where uh, they attempt to create a collectivity whose values and practices adhere to their understanding of the Bible. And they want to do away as far as possible with reflexivity and interiority that's not connected with the Bible project. And one of the ways they do this is by removing all markers of individualism. Everybody dresses alike lives in a similar way, uh, spends much time together in a collective sense, is educated uh, to have an internal self, which as far as possible <coughs> represents the social self that's being created through the scriptures and other social norms. Huh? So that is the, that's an anti-modern strategy because of how it attempts to control and limit interiority and reflexivity. The secular version of this I'm very clear about where it begins. It's Thomas More's Utopia. And if you go through Utopia, if you were to read it against um, 1984, you would see the striking, striking parallels between the two. So here's this lovely, happy, peaceful island, except it makes conquests when it needs to expand, in which freedom of religion is practiced, which its author is doing the best to prevent in England burning Protestants at the stake. Uh, he later pays with his own life for, this, for that. But religion is, of course, meaningful, uh, meaningless in the context because 
the society has removed the interiority and reflexivity that leads to choices about one's life and religious beliefs and practices that make it meaningful. So there are multiple cities, each one laid out in exactly the same way. Every house has exactly the same design. <coughs> People share rooms except for married couples. Everybody dresses in the same simple clothes. There are no jewelry, there's no finery, only used by children as toys until they outgrow it and see how ridiculous it is. Everybody eats common meals. There's fundamentally no free time. In theory, there's free time, but everybody's marched into attend lectures and workshops. So there's no way that you can develop and express yourself in a society like that that's completely regimented and removes the possibilities of even imagining uh, differences and meaningful self-expression. And uh, you could argue that uh, <coughs> there are modern equivalents to this uh, totalitarianism. I suppose North Korea would come as the closest example to it in practice. Uh, but that you know, Marxism represents a, a secularized <coughs> modern version of it. Now when we turn to the uh, modern uh, identities, uh, the first develops in England. And arguably, you find evidence of it in Shakespeare. But certainly by the late 18th century, uh, it becomes a highly theorized and discussed in the writings of Boswell, uh, Adam Smith, and later in the 19th century in John Stuart Mill. The notion here is one of self-fashioning, that people make themselves by observing society, which offers this splendid array of choice. And what people do is emulate others. And not necessarily one whole person, but they mix and match things about people that they admire or like. And they keep playing it through and changing themselves through role playing and ultimately evolve into their own selves and become yet another model in society that others can use to engage in their own self-fashioning. So for the uh, uh, British liberal thinkers, uh, individual identity and society uh, are not opposing projects. There are tensions between them, to be sure. But society is necessary for individuals to find their fulfillment by taking from it, by putting back into it, and by, in part, being in conflict with it. Uh, but there's a, a positive feedback relationship between the two. And the fourth uh, movement is also based on the notion that interiority and reflexivity are important, but that society is the enemy. Because society wants to control you and make you conform to a false set of values, which have the sense of denying your own authenticity and strangling uh, what could be uh, a rich inner self. And of course, uh, this is a continental philosophy Rousseau is the first dominant uh, spokesman uh, for it. It's taken up through German um, idealism. Uh, 
ultimately it finds its way into, uh, into postmodernism. Uh, there's a long intellectual lineage, which I will not discuss now, and I actually don't even in the book. But the key here is that you need to free yourself from society and its totalizing projects. You find this in postmodernist literature as well. And either through uh, looking inwardly or to nature, uh, you find and develop yourself. This romantic approach to identity is uh, far and away the dominant one in my students' minds, both in London and uh, in, in New Hampshire. Although I'd argue in practice what most of them are doing is playing out a variant of strategy three of the, of the mixing and matching. Uh, and of course, it had its uh, entry into American popular culture through the writings of Eric Erickson in the 1960s, a student of Freud, who in turn was deeply embedded in German idealist um, uh, traditions. And we see it in movies and popular literature. Uh, I won't go down that road now. I do a little in the, uh, in the book. And these four uh, projects are associated with, respectively, um, conservatism, totalitarianism, liberalism, the British project, and anarchism, which would be the uh, Rousseau's postmodern uh, take on identity. And all of these are distinctly modern, modern projects. So what I'm trying to do in the book is to look at the psychological underpinnings of modern politics and political forms and look at the interplay between these forms um, and the identities. Uh, and I do this by looking at the texts that I argue have helped uh, instantiate uh, these projects. And most of them, uh, more so than other kinds of uh, other genres, are associated with golden ages, utopias, and dystopias. And golden ages, as far as I know, are unique to Western culture. And by a golden age, I mean a text like the Garden of Eden, Eden or Hesiod's uh, Works and Days that imagines a world that never was, that is vastly superior to what we now have, that attributes the difference to uh, human frailties, and thus is a theodicy in that it justifies the inequalities and suffering of one's own age and society. Well, golden ages, which emerge with Bacon and um, Moore, go back and build on these gold, prior golden ages, but they turn them into future states that can be uh, attained within reason in the real world. So utopias become the uh, genre for uh, pioneering three of my four identities, the two anti-modern strategies and the um, uh, Rousseauist uh, <coughs> anarchist free ourselves from the constraints of, of, of society. And of course, Rousseau is an author in a way of utopias and utopian thinking himself. Dystop dystopias 
are critiques of utopias and attempt to uh, expose their projects as leading to worlds which are in fact uh, more damning and unpleasant than the ones in which we live. And they're a distinctly liberal project associated with identity number three. And they go after and show up the uh, a rigid, uh, almost totalitarian nature of most utopias. And this is a striking feature of utopias. And what I do in my, if I sit down for a moment, can everybody still see me? So what I do in, in my text is I start with a chapter that examines the uh, relationship between golden age utopias and dystopias and how uh, they can be read one against the other in a comparative way, but all of them uh, be seen as deeply involved with either building identities or exposing identity projects as, as, as damaging, and in a few cases even problematizing the concept of identity. And I look at why these genres were chosen to do it uh, as opposed to all the other kinds of philosophical discourse uh, that we have. Then I focus on identity in the modern and ancient world, and I pick four uh, periods of uh, great transformation because that's when existing identities are called into questions and new ones arise. So I look at the emergence of the Greek polis, and I use uh, Homer's Iliad and Hesiod's work and days as my, as my text. I then look at the Augustan age and Virgil's Aeneid, I turn from the ancient world in two chapters to the Enlightenment, and the first, the one I've enjoyed uh, writing the most, and the one I, I have to thank Dory Noyes for uh, much helpful uh, uh, guidance and feedback on, is a, uh, a reading of four Mozart de Ponte operas. Huh? Well, it's a... Don Giovanni at three, Marriage of Figaro and, uh, and Cosi Fantute. And I read uh, not only the libretti, but the music, because Mozart tells you much in the music which either supports or undercuts what's going on in the text, and that's to give you clues as to what is happening. I read these, uh, these operas as conscious thought experiments by Mozart and de Ponte to test old regime and enlightenment identities under varying circumstances <coughs> and to show for different reasons how each is destructive in its consequences for individuals and society. And in Cosi Fatute, they work toward uh, not a solution but a way of, of addressing this in a more cynical and perhaps satisfactory means. And in the conclusion, I actually build off their thoughts in Cosi Fantute to, uh, to update and, and, and extend them. And then a second chapter, and let me add, I, I, I also look at the magic flute um, in this chapter. And the magic flute is, of course, a, a quintessential combination golden age uh, utopian uh, document. My ch next chapter looks at the Germans and the Greeks. And I pose the interesting question, it's the late 18th century. There's a revival of interest throughout uh, Western Europe on the ancient <coughs> Greeks. The British turn to Homer, and the Germans turn to tragedy. 
And there are great political cultural reasons why this happens. Uh, Homer provided a perfect uh, discourse and vocabulary for empire. And tragedy uh, was a vehicle, I argue, for German intellectuals in a country that was ununified and relatively backward and ruled by even more backward aristocrats, as Kant said, it was the age of enlightenment, but not yet an enlightened age, uh, to, to create a, a fictional golden age Greece, Athens especially, from which they could create a modern German identity for themselves. And then after the repressions following the Napoleonic Wars, it became an alternate cultural space where they could seek refuge. And ironically, the German fascination with tragedy, I argue, ended up having tragic consequences. <coughs> One of the features of tragedy is that you engage in a, a scenario uh, which you expect to bring you benefits, which has the reverse effect of what you intended, and a logic which you only belatedly come to, to recognize. And I show how this is the case in Germany, and it offers me a particularly interesting case study of identity formation uh, on the continent in contrast to the kind of argument I'm making about Britain. My two last chapters look at the present, and they're paired. They're both anti-modern discourses, one a popular discourse, the other an elite discourse. The popular discourse is the uh, Christian novels of the left behind. Uh, series uh, produced by um, uh, evangelicals who believe the rapture, the return of Jesus is imminent, uh, the faithful will be saved, more than a third <coughs> of humanity will be destroyed in the ensuing trial of tribulation, and even more once the millennium is set up and only a small handful of the faithful will float up to heaven um, in, in the end. Uh, they completely reject the notion of reforming this world as anything but the work of the devil. Uh, it can't be done. Uh, one instead has to create a Christian identity and give one's life over to Jesus. It's very similar to uh, Tyndale and the Puritans. It's a modern version of it. It developed dispensationalism, the ideology in the late 19th century, exactly the same time as Marx. And what I find, and I draw this in the conclusion to the chapter, I find 15 striking similarities between it and the brand of Marxism developed by Marx and Engels. And the devil, for example, is just like the capitalists. Huh? Fiendishly clever, you know, able to do these remarkable things to pull the wool over the eyes of people, but can't see beyond the end of his nose. Doesn't realize that uh, Jesus is going to send him to hell the same way capitalists don't realize that everything they're doing is going to bring about the revolution. Even after Marx has written about it, you know, they still continue to behave the way they do. So there's this just enormous uh, contradiction. And this is just one of many. And I argue that, there, that these similarities reflect a similar attitude towards society and identity. Uh, which leads to uh, these kinds of arguments. And the last substantive chapter is about how science fiction novels and stories address the problem of immortality. 
And here there's another interesting story to tell because you think that immortality is sort of the holy grail of humankind. It's something we've been lusting after for a time immemorial. But uniformly, in fact, there's not one science fiction novel I found that treats it positively. All science fiction authors write stories in which immortality turns out to be a disaster. And it's a disaster because capitalism endures. Everybody's convinced that socialism is dead and it will cost money. And if you think that inequality now consists of somebody living in a mega mansion and <coughs> you in an apartment in Grandview, uh, think about when rich people will have immortality with constantly updated bodies and the rest of you will be like mayflies uh, who lead uh, comparatively short and uh, not so happy lives. It does away with society because people don't need it anymore. They can rely on themselves for everything. It intensifies stratification. Progress ends. Uh, there's no chance of a new generation replacing the other. So I, I look at this, but more importantly, uh, what the engagement with immortality suggests that science fiction authors of the last 60 years think about what it is that makes us human. And science fiction is interesting in this regard because it becomes even more difficult to maintain boundaries and markers uh, in a world where technology can put you into another person's body of the same or a different gender, can put you into a computer, uh, into an animal, where we produce um, androids that are indistinguishable from human beings. And some of this is already happening. If you uh, Google sexbot, uh, you'll discover that there are now Japanese and German companies that are manufacturing not sex dolls, but androids with uh, engineered sexual parts. Uh, and you could imagine a time in the not too distant future where these will become you know, even more lifelike and that people can buy them with their former spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend's <coughs> body and face on it. Or I don't know, Paris Hilton and other celebrities will license uh, their, their bodies to be reproduced for people to live out their fantasies with them. There's a lot of money to be made here. Huh? And think about it. it, it's safe sex with a partner who if you don't want doesn't talk back, Just turn off the switch. Uh, so this leads me to, uh, to, to the conclusions of the book which try to, God help me, tie it all together. And I do so uh, by making a series of arguments, and I'm just going to lay them out very briefly uh, to you. I already noted that I challenged this distinction between the ancient and the modern world, and of course one of the defining features of the modern world is that it distinguishes itself from everything that went before it. It's in a way the first age to do this. And denying interiority in the ancient world is yet another way that modernity creates uh, an image of itself, a kind of utopian image of itself in comparison to, to, to the past. Um, I argue that while social identities are very real in the phenomenological sense, that agency and self-fashioning are also important. And I try very hard to bring that back into 
the analytical picture, and in particular through role-playing and the ways in which it enables us to try out uh, new roles and even transform ourselves uh, in, in the process and how historically this happened. And I traced the comparisons between what happened in practice to what happens in literature and opera. And the two are very revealing. And I, just to give you one lovely example from Mozart in Cosi fan tutte, you have these two suitors, Ferrando and Guglielmo, uh, who uh, want to test the faithfulness of their uh, mistresses. So they get themselves allegedly called off to war, but then return in Albanian dress and each makes a move on the other's woman. And of course, each ultimately meets with success, but at a differential rate, which of course creates a conflict between them. And once they've seduced these other women, they arrange for themselves to return dressed as their original selves, just as the Albanians are to marry the mistresses. And of course, the women are horrified, the women are shocked, and the men who have arranged this whole thing, you know, then just set into them for being uh, un unfaithful. Uh, and finally reveal themselves to have been the Albanians and end up marrying their original women anyway, which is a whole other story. But when this happens, uh, Mozart won't let them go back to their original keys. They struggle to get there, but he'll let them work around it but they're no longer the same people. You know, Role-playing has, um, has, has transformed them. So I explore role-playing as a form of, uh, of agency and argue that it's historically been extremely important, but it's been theoretically um, neglected. One of my most interesting findings, uh, and certainly I, I think important one in theory and practice, is the extent to which identity is not associated with the creation of negative others, okay? And ever since Kant and Hegel have been read superficially, to believe that we need negative others to create ourselves, I mean, they both do argue this, but then they later argue this can be overcome at a later stage. It has become axiomatic that we need negative others, and even people like Nietzsche, who, who hate the thought, accept it as an empirical reality. I mean, Carl Schmitt revels in it, but it's another case. And certainly it's uh, the conventional wisdom in social science today. Well, Virgil and Homer make the case that identities, identity formation is a collaborative project. And that we sustain our humanity through nuanced relations with others. I don't have time to go into chapter and verse, on that I do when I treat the text. And interestingly, the last 10 years of work in social psychology, much of it done by Marilyn Brewer, who used to have an office upstairs, indicates, not that she would put it in this language, that Homer and Virgil are right. Huh? That stereotypes of others form only after we've created identities. And negative images of others are a special case associated with conflict over scarce resources. And work as well I draw on by psychiatrists and psychologists on young children and how they form a sense of self indicates that healthy identities form when we maintain and draw even closer to those from whom we're separated. So in fact, identity construction is a dialectical process that involves separation but drawing closer together. 
and both should happen at the same time. The literature overwhelmingly focuses on the one. And I try to create this dialectical model and focus more on the other uh, to show how essential it is. And I draw, again, on psychological evidence, but also on evidence across my texts uh, to, make, to make this point. Uh, I then move uh, to the question of markers and boundaries, uh, drawing on all of the texts, not just the, the science fiction, uh, to show how difficult it is to erect any kind of meaningful marker <laughs> and boundary. And in practice, how labile uh, these things are, even though we tend to think of them at, in an essentialist way. Now, if you keep that in mind and bring in as well the notion that this is true of our identities, and here earlier I noted both the philosophical and the psychological literature on identity that suggests that we're multiple, fragmented, evolving selves. And I pose the question, if we could recognize and accept ourselves as this, what would the political and ethical consequences be? And here, I distinguish myself sharply from communitarians and other philosophers, uh, Leo Strauss, Charles Taylor, Alastair McIntyre, uh, all of whom argue, uh, Paul Ricoeur among um, postmodernists, that ethics must be anchored in identity. And if we are incoherent selves, uh, this is not a very sensible move. And the only way indeed we could do it is the way in which the um, <coughs> totalitarians, secular and religious, try, which is to creating, by creating monolithic selves uh, that restructure people's identity only to reflect the social purpose of the society and in the process, of course, depriving us of much of our humanity. We gain our humanity by recognizing how problematic our selfhood is and in dealing with those tensions. And to the extent we could recognize them, I argue, we create all kinds of new psychological mechanisms for bridging the boundaries and markers that now are always brought into place to separate the us from the they. And while not providing a foundation for ethics, it provides the foundation for transcending the barriers that stand in the way with better, more far-reaching ethical systems. And I lay out that argument at the end of the book and uh, suggest that to the extent to which this could happen, it could um, uh, create uh, grounds for actually bridging and surpassing the communitarian uh, cosmopolitan divide. At the very end of the book, I return to my four identity projects and I offer an assessment on them. And as you might imagine, um, uh, uh, strongly negative views, both ethically and also about the practicality of the two anti-modern identity projects. Um, I am not happy with the postmodern romantic identity project uh, because I think it's unrealistic to find oneself in nature or as uh, 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 postmodernists would have us, 
to imagine a, uh, an anti-totalitarian identity uh, for ourselves. But postmodernists are nevertheless onto something uh, which is a critique of the liberal strategy, which is the only one I think has any chance of success. And what they've noted, and certainly this goes back to Horkheimer and Odorno, <coughs> that you would think with modernity the role models of society would, as Mill and others have expected, have increased. But the reverse may be true. So I have, I don't know how many hundreds of channels on my satellite TV, okay? They also show the same shit. I mean, there's just hardly any variation on them. And to the extent to which we've become a commercialized society, uh, the role models are created in corporate headquarters, and they too have become um, very limiting. So in some ways, the liberal project, while it's the only one that's feasible in the modern world, is facing dark days uh, at the moment, and postmodernists have their finger on the pulse uh, in identifying uh, uh, the barriers to it. And I end by suggesting that um, it, it's ultimately the only feasible project in the modern world, but with it a recognition that even the self-fashioning that we engage in will still end up constructing fragmented, multiple labile selves. Let me stop there. Ted. I know, I know. But, but I have a data set. <laughs> hey, I want to start where you ended because um, I'm wondering whether your, your, your postmodern, first of all, I don't see how you get to your postmodern focus and your model. Because by conflating romanticism and postmodernism, I think you draw up both the narratives of the future. And romantic projects is so much involved in an essentializing self, the true self is a organic I think I only inflated them in the talk. Um, I, I make these, these distinctions in, 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 in the text, and, and I should have in the talk as well, and I, I apologize for that. Um, it's clear that for Rousseau and Romantics, that while we become individuals, uh, we ultimately reconcile with society. And I would consider Nietzsche in many ways as the father of the postmodern version who completely rejects uh, this idea as, as a fiction and does see an ongoing tension and a constant change and very strongly, which is taken up by postmodernists, in effort to avoid uh, forcing people into procrustrean beds created by, by society. That it's the resistance to that that helps make us ourselves. Uh, that's, that's absolutely there. Uh, and what I am actually doing is uh, arguing for a kind of uh, uh, compromise between positions three and four, the liberal and the postmodernist one. Yes, hi. Hi. 
Good to see you again. Link with sociobiology, <coughs> I assume that yes, indeed, you do need an other to have a salient identity. Right. And I've used it very successfully in some of the work. Mm -hmm. um, which, of course, as you know, what it suggests is that while we can fashion many numbers of identities, it's the environment, the social environment, that determines which of those would be salient. Right. That's right. absolutely right. Really be yeah. Matter. yeah. Um, I don't so disagree I, with it. You don't? No, no, no. I, I started by saying that, in fact, that's how it happens given our identifications uh, that they're very much determined by the environment and by, uh, by, by priming. But I was looking at a level below of uh, how we reflect upon ourselves and what kind of selves we want to be and where we think it, it, it comes from. Uh, and that's different and it's not necessarily antagonistic to social identity theory because social identity theory uh, is telling us um, something about the responses of people in certain sets of conditions. Uh, and, and that's absolutely right and is perfectly reasonable. The only difference I have with social identity theory is that, as you point out, it does assume that you need a negative other. Uh, to create a self, but I think there's enough evidence from other social psychological research to call that aspect of it in, into question. Now, it doesn't mean, and here social identity theory is right, that once uh, an identity forms, even for the most superficial of reasons, as uh, Tashvel and Turner have, have demonstrated, that people then feel more strongly about members of the group than they do about people on the outside but it doesn't mean that they necessarily have negative views of them or that the sense of self formed in contrast to the others because remember those early experiments in social identity theory they found that the group identity developed from performing this task right and it was just with other members of the group so in fact the identity developed before they were asked to think in any way about other groups oh no i think that competition, you know, serious outcomes would only happen if there was a competition in some way. But I'm saying in the real world, that's inevitable. That's going to happen with different groups. And so I'm not really sure where you're headed okay. with. Well, Maybe you're being a little bit utopian yourself. No, well, so, so, so follow through on this. One of the findings uh, of psychology that is consistent with social identity theory is that uh, this conflict is intense when people are competing about the same things. So uh, if you have a world in which wealth is, wealth is increasing, and we've moved away from the mercantilist notion that wealth was finite, hmm, thanks to Adam Smith and Ricardo and others, then the people who uh, are also getting rich are in some ways helping you. And this is the foundation of the modern economic system, of trade, of economies of scale. So when it comes to wealth, it's not so much an issue. Where it is an issue is self-esteem, okay? And we know, and I've made this argument in cultural theory, so I don't want to uh, give another lecture on that, but we know, for example, from studies of people around the world, that once you reach a certain income and you're asked uh, your next increment of advantage, do you want it to be in, in standing or income? People uniformly move toward, toward standing. 
And if you have single hierarchies of standing, then competition is very intense because standing, unlike wealth, is relative. Huh? Well, I think that's what I was trying to say. The status really is the coin of the realm. Yes, it, it is. But think about one of the features of the modern world is this remarkable proliferation of status hierarchies. Yeah. But At, also we're manufacturing. Whatever the rich have today, the poor will probably have in 20 or 30 years. It, it has become harder and harder for the rich to maintain their status. But that's why conspicuous consumption was not Exactly. Oh, the, and, and so I don't understand your science fiction writers. I think they must have limited vision because no. increasingly it will be cultural markers that is going to be limited, not just basic wealth. Well, I, I mean, that may well be. Uh, in, in the, the uh, science fiction novels, it's quite interesting that uh, all of them see these sharp class divisions based on wealth. And you could very readily imagine that your view is the more accurate one, that a th 500 years from now, divisions on the basis of wealth will have disappeared. And that it will be all these other markers, in which case, um, you know, immortality will play out differently. Uh, it's an interesting, interesting question. I should incorporate that, that thought in, in reviewing that literature. Thank you. Somebody else? Bill. Um, two possible connections to the contemporary world. Uh, one is outside Europe. Uh, when you're talking about golden ages, I think that there is a fair amount of literature on this one as political ideology. That, that argues that, that those are people who do indeed engage in golden age thinking. You know, that the original period, this is the Sahatra, mm -hmm. in terms of the ancestors and so right. forth. The, the people who think about the golden age of Muhammad and his companions, mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's not Islam in general, but a particular kind of uh, Islamic fundamentalism in the United States. So you said when you were talking about golden yeah. age that you can think about, you know, that you have Ah. So, let me make my second comment. Uh, so that's, uh, can you relate to Islam? Right. Right. The second one is, I couldn't help but think about Democrats and Republicans um, <laughs> here. And I, I own polarization. And, yeah. and it strikes me that, that increasingly, uh, the, the dominant Republican culture is one that denies any kind of relationship between agencies right. and Congress. Right. Um, so that, so, you know, there's a kind of utopian thinking that is rooted maybe in Ayn Rand at the shrunk, a kind of utopia in which there are only good guys and bad guys. Okay. Um, uh, and the good guys, of course, are the people that Paul Ryan wants to want to control. Right. Yeah, so can you relate it to that? Yeah. Well, you know, think of um, Ron Paul and why he named his son Rand. Yeah, of course, of course. That's why I, I, I know. very influential. Alan Greenspan also right. It's remarkable how such a bad novelist can influence so many people. No, no. Yes, this is very strongly present. And obviously, I, I've avoided in my book making any direct political connections, but they're there for people to bring out, and, and very strongly so. Uh, and certainly there's uh, the world these right-wing Republicans talk about is a utopia. Oh, excuse me, it's a golden age. It's a golden age that never existed. Hmm? That they are talking about the radical libertarians, right? Yeah, the radical libertarians. Yes. Uh, it never existed. 
and they've created it as this uh, world to somehow be emulated and we could bring about a utopia that captured most of it if only we followed these, the, these policies. And more widely, I think, uh, Republicans appeal to, and here I go back to Ronald Reagan, uh, to people who have nostalgia for a world that never was. You know, an image uh, of the 1950s, Robert Putnam's guilty of this as well, an image of the 1950s as this ideal world of uh, leave it to beaver. Uh, leaving out of it, uh, you know, racial intolerance, uh, everything else that made the 50s, and I remember the 50s. I mean, you and I both were in university in the 50s. It was not a very nice time. Uh, but it is in their minds. And when uh, threatened by the complexities of modern life and changes in values, uh, these people seek to return to a world that never was. And from Reagan on, Republicans have successfully pandered uh, to these views. It's tremendously important in politics. Uh, and uh, as for um, Islam, which I obviously defer to your knowledge about, uh, I kept writing and asking all my friends who specialized in non-Western cultures, uh, tell me, are there, is there golden age thinking elsewhere? And the most I could get were people who told me, yeah, that it exists in two ways in a way that I don't use it myself in the West, that people look back to some earlier era as a golden age in comparison to now, and that seems to be universal. But looking back to a kind of fictional age and then using it for the purposes of the golden age, they said that that's beginning to happen, but it's all sort of copied from what the West has done. But maybe you, you could cite me some sources I could read on Islam. Well, I'm going to, after the, yeah, well, I'm going to write it down. Oh, good. Oh, I'd love to read it. Thank you. Thank you. Actually, in my class, I teach that Wahab was a Martin Luther. Because if you look at the agenda of Martin Luther and the agenda of Wahab, they were very similar. So they're having the Protestant Reformation, 30 years of war. Yeah, put that in the book. <laughs> I'll let you take the <laughs> Well, but not with cartoons. <laughs> Last question? Okay, well, we'll end it here. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Thank you.